On today's show, I'll be talking about character deaths from a writer's perspective. What does it mean for a character to die in a story? What are good examples of character deaths and bad examples of character deaths? We'll take a look at Stranger Things, the Obi-Wan Kenobi series, Star Wars in general, and more. In fact, let me know what you think of some good or bad character deaths in the comments, and we'll address those here on this show. If you're watching live, you can participate and we can have a deeper conversation about character pets. Welcome to the Story Geek Show. I will be talking spoilers for Stranger Things, including season four, this latest season, including volume two of season four. So if you haven't seen that yet, you might want to bow out. I'll also be talking about the Obi-Wan Kenobi series and Tokyo Vice. And since we're talking about character deaths, these are big spoilers, major spoilers. So don't (laughs) listen if you don't want to be spoiled for those things. Um, and I am going to start talking about them like literally right now. So if you don't want to be spoiled for these things, then definitely jump off. What's up, Orange Grove 55 in the chat? This is for, for you too. If anybody in the chat hasn't seen the latest, the very latest episodes of Stranger Things or Obi-Wan Kenobi, um, or, you know, I'm going to be talking about some old school Star Wars deaths too, but you, you do not want to be spoiled and you better bounce. So I'm going to get into it like literally right now. The specific character deaths I am addressing on today's show are Tala from the Obi-Wan Kenobi series, Darth Vader in Return of the Jedi. That's not much of a spoiler because pretty much everybody knows that that happened. I'll be talking about some of the characters from Tokyo Vice as well. And now here's the really big spoiler. If you have not seen Stranger Things Volume 2 yet, please, please X out of this because I'm about to spoil it right now. Uh, We will also be talking about, from Stranger Things, the Eddie Munson death as well. I want to talk about all of those things on today's show. Hopefully you will stick around to chat about it with me. I'm Jay Shear, co-writer of Death of a Bounty Hunter. In my book, uh, Death of a Bounty Hunter <laughs> has death in the name of it. So I am the co-writer of Death of a Bounty Hunter and Time Slingers. The full cast audiobook of Death of a Bounty Hunter is now available on Audible, audiobooks.com, Apple Books, and most places audiobooks are sold. Support the show by purchasing a copy. Links are in the description down below. Um, I'm going to start out with an email I got from a fan, and I thought it was a really good email because I had mentioned it on a previous show um, about people talking about not wanting to see characters die. And I thought that that was interesting because as a writer, as an author, character deaths are something that authors and writers use all of the time and we use them for very specific reasons so i thought i would address that topic because a lot of people on twitter were saying we don't want any more character deaths um and like for an author or a storyteller it's like basically saying like you should stop thinking about deep and impactful things <laughs> and so i just want to address that from a different angle so that maybe it's a little bit a di- little bit different of a perspective than you may have heard before but this email comes to us from Brianna. Brianna is a supporter of the show, um, and I really appreciate her support. She just said, uh, I just finished listening to the episode, the last Obi-Wan episode, which was one that I talked about. I wanted to provide some insight on this subject um, as someone who does want more wish fulfillment in stories, but I don't think it's as black and white as that. So I'm going to pause and just let me offer a little bit of commentary. One of the things that I had been talking about on the previous show was that one of the things that I'm starting to see in the general audience category (laughs) is that people want wish fulfillment. And that is that uh, the best example of it is that every, everything works out the way that the audience wants it to work out in the end, not the way that it might actually work out in real life, Not the way that it might work out um, in most stories that involve conflict of some kind, 
but rather this idea that it would work out the way that the audience prefers. It's it's a version of fan service. Usually when we talk about fan service, fan service is something like, we really want to see this character in this film, or we really want to see this character. I mean, let's, let's take the Obi-Wan series, right? At the end of the, in the last episode of the Obi-Wan series, um, when Obi-Wan says the words, hello there, that's fan service. Because he doesn't need to say that. He doesn't need to say that at that moment. Those words do not need to come out of his mouth. That's fan service. The fans know, or the, the writers know, the fans would love to see this. And so, so they put it into the story. Uh, that's a version of wish fulfillment, but even a bigger version of wish fulfillment is that the characters I love don't die. The characters I love keep going on into the future. And that would be, or there's, or uh, the conflict that we would normally see in the modern world doesn't exist anymore because it's been taken away. It's been taken off the table. Um, that would be a version of wish fulfillment. So I've been talking about wish fulfillment. So that's what, she, that's what Brianna is referencing here. And she says, um, she wants to see more wish fulfillment and she uses the quotation marks, but she doesn't think it's as black and white as that for me. Uh, and I think a lot of other people in the star Wars fandom, it's not that I don't want tragic stories. It's that I don't want tragic endings. I think there's a big distinction between the two. And the best example of this is Ben Solo. Ben Solo's story was very tragic, especially if you look at the comics and the books, you learn that Ben had a very sad childhood. He was lonely and desperately wanted to please his parents, but they weren't around for him to do that. I think a lot of people, including myself, really relate to his story. And I think fans do want those tragic stories because we can relate to them. The problem is that he died so young after being redeemed for a few minutes. When fans relate to a character with a tragic backstory, it's very discouraging to them to see that character not fulfill their potential. Yes, he had redemption, but he didn't have the rest of his life to do good. In comparison, Darth Vader's redemption and story are very similar, but I don't think his ending was as tragic because he had lived for so long as a dark figure causing pain throughout the galaxy. There was really no other way for him to redeem himself. I think the underlying message was that Luke would then go on to do good on Anakin's behalf, whereas Ben was a dark figure for a shorter time than Vader was, and throughout it, he was struggling to stay on the dark side. The only reason Ben was on the dark side was because there was that was the only place that he could go. Anakin chose to join the dark side and uh, defied everyone else. That's my opinion, and I hope it makes sense. I really enjoy the podcast and thoughtful dis discussions. Thank you so much, Brianna. So here's the here's what here's what we're going to get into as we talk about this. Uh, because by the way, I'm so appreciative of fans of the show like Brianna because that was an incredibly intelligent, well written email, really digging down deeper into why she felt the ways that she felt. A lot of times on Twitter, the discourse is, I don't want any more characters to die. <laughs> and from a writer's perspective, you're sitting there going like, what are you talking about? You're just removing a lot of the stakes that I can offer um, to the story. So because Brianna brought up uh, Kylo Ren's death, I think I should address that in this show too. And I'll, and I'll make a note um, to do that uh, in a minute here. But the first one I want to start with was Darth Vader because she also brought up um, Darth Vader. And we do have to acknowledge that Star Wars is a very specific type of storytelling, right? Star Wars is trying to tell um, mythological stories. We don't necessarily expect Star Wars to be true or realistic. Now, when I say that, I actually have a fundamental disagreement with people who don't think that Star Wars should not contain some level of truth. Meaning that Star Wars, I don't think, is at its best when Star Wars is just wish fulfillment and we get to see good defeat evil. Um, as Orange Grove 55 points out in the chat, character deaths are needed. Stories need stakes. 
<laughs> very true. We'll get into that, like why that works. And so I think the problem is from a fan standpoint is, you know, there are certain characters we don't want to die. There are certain characters that we, this is, this is what's interesting about um, writers versus audiences, right? Writers are constantly looking for, most writers are constantly looking for, let me, let me even say this a little bit differently. Most good writers, <laughs> most good writers are attempting to do something very specific in the stories. They're attempting to showcase something that they have seen as being true. And in that truth, they want to express how they discovered it to be true for them. And if you're a writer, you do that through fictional storytelling, or you might do it through journalism, or you might do it through something else. Now, the problem is, is that our expectations of fiction are that it doesn't need to be accurate to the lived experience. Whereas if, if journalism isn't accurate to the lived experience, um, we would say that's like not even real journalism. It's like that defies the topic. Whereas fiction is literally not how the word world actually works. It is not, uh, did not factually happen. But we also know that fiction contains uh, some of the most powerful and potent mythology that we've ever seen. Fiction is uh, has to deal with some of the biggest um, conceptual frameworks that we've ever had to live with. And so fiction is something that we say, you know what, it may not be true in our lived experience, but it can be metaphysically true. It can be metaphorically true. It can actually inspire us to be better people. So there's a different kind of truth that we may be playing with there. And we're going to talk about that as we talk about character deaths, because those things come up in different ways and shapes and forms. So let's just talk, let's just start breaking these down because I think that when we start breaking them down, we'll understand a little bit better about what is going on with the characters. The first one we'll talk about is Darth Vader. This is very classic. And Darth Vader, as Brianna um, points out, Darth Vader has a redemptive death. Now, it's important that we define what we mean by a redemptive death for Darth Vader. Um, you could make the argument to me. So, so let's just first of all define what we mean by redemption. Redemption, in general, means that you have done, you have offered back uh, something that is then offered back to you in return, usually in the form of forgiveness. So you said, I've done something bad. I'm, I'm now doing this new thing. And we were, we use the term redeem as like a coupon. I'm going to redeem this coupon, right? I got the coupon. <laughs> I'm going to now redeem it with someone so that I can get back something, right? In this case, a lot of characters have done something bad. They do something redemptive with their life, and then they're given back something in return right? Whether it's forgiveness or whether whatever, uh, whatever it could be, there's usually something. Usually in the spiritual context, what we're saying is that, that some form of sin has been committed, meaning that we have harmed other people, we've harmed the environment, we've, we've, we've done something bad that has had an impact on the world. And that now we are, the character needs to be redeemed from that. They need to do something that would make all of their bad acts all of their sinful acts now restored to kind of a kind of a balancing point right now the reason i bring up darth vader is because darth vader is a very specific case if we take the orig original trilogy by itself you could potentially make the argument that darth vader's death is redemptive because he sees evil for the first time and when he sees evil he defeats evil 
and then realizes that he has done evil and that now he's redeemed. Now, the reason I bring that up is because um, there uh, you could make an argument that it doesn't have to be a spiritual redemption only, meaning that what have we seen Darth Vader do? We've seen him fight for the Empire, uh, uh, something that he believes in. Um, he does seem to be too aggressive. He doesn't seem to be caring about human lives. But we could look at him as a military figure, maybe working inappropriately uh, with a with a dictator, and we could go, well, okay, maybe by by like defeating the dictator, he can bring about some sort of physical redemption, meaning that he is not beholden to this his past sins. The problem with that is is that it's not played that way in the original trilogy, and then when George Lucas added the prequel trilogy. He made all of that impossible, right? Now, why did he make all of that impossible? Well, the reason he made all of that impossible was because when you see the backstory of Darth Vader and you see all of the things that he did to become Darth Vader, you very quickly have no possible means of this character redeeming themselves in a physical in a physical sense. So let's go, why, why is that? Well, there's no way that you can go and kill, uh, you know, dozens if not hundreds of younglings and other people, innocent people, including the clone troopers, there's no way you can do those things and then have a physical redemption. Because what could you possibly do to redeem yourself from that kind of behavior? Now, when I say physical redemption, what, um, what do I mean by physical redemption? Physical redemption is you do your penance and you, and the society says, that's good. Now you can be a part of normal society again. So for example, you you stole from a grocery store, you shoplifted. Now you go to jail for a few days and we say, okay, that's enough. That's enough jail for you. Now don't go shoplifting again and just, you're okay. So this idea that is like physical redemption is saying like, well, I did bad things, but I can, I can do, I can do my time and then I can do good things and not do bad things again. That's like a, an example of like everyday life, um, physical redemption. The idea of spiritual redemption is no matter how bad the things you did were, that you could have a spiritual um, turning point, a change of your mind that changes your heart, that changes your overall perspective on the world. And spiritual redemption, by definition, um, does not just wipe away all the physical things that you did wrong, right? Like we don't say, like, for example, we don't say, uh, although, you know, inmates have tried to do this, but we, we generally don't say, well, because you just all of a sudden said you started reading your Bible and you said you believe all of a sudden you uh, came to Jesus, right? Like this is a thing. We have a come to Jesus talk with somebody. Just because you did that doesn't mean that it erases all of these other past sins, so to speak, right? Like those just don't go away. Those still exist. The only way that you'd say you're redeemed of them and they don't matter to you is in the spiritual sense. So right off the bat, you're dealing with, okay, there is physical, I'm using the word physical redemption. It's basically uh, uh, not metaphysical, <laughs> right? It's actually redemption that you can make atonement for yourself and it makes sense to do so. So for example, in the, in the, in the example I was using earlier, if you, um, you know, by mistake killed someone and got convicted of manslaughter, but then you saved 10 people in a burning fire, we'd probably be like, okay, well, that was kind of a mistake with the manslaughter thing that you did. And then you saved a bunch of people. So physically speaking, like we'll, we'll say that you're still an okay person. 
But notice that if like it was something horrific, like what Anakin did <laughs> by killing younglings, you can't just like all of a sudden, you know, become a big brother <laughs> and then like, yeah, you're forgiven. You're you, good job. We appreciate what you did there. So Darth Vader's redemption, particularly after that, we see what's in the prequel trilogy has to be a spiritual redemption. It has to be a him realizing the hurt and the pain that he caused uh, what that means for him. And then him saying like, I am turning away from that behavior. If we were to look at it though, from a physical standpoint, Vader still is deserving of a lot of punishment. In this case, he's only able to overturn the emperor. Is that a big deal? Sure it is. But if we're going to call him a good person uh, or a, or a sufficient enough good person to become a force ghost on the light side, that's going to have to be predominantly spiritual because it, there's no way that we're allowing him to make up for that by just throwing um, the emperor over over the side of of the cliff. So so that's why Darth Vader's death, in my opinion, works. Because if if we said if we said now now we show Darth Vader partying <laughs> with the Ewoks and everyone being like, "Awesome! It's so cool that Darth Vader is here." that would seem so atrocious to our understanding of what justice would be that we go like, we cannot see that. So from a writing perspective, a writer has to say, okay, if a, if a lot of people do believe in some form of spiritual redemption, why do people believe that? Because a lot of people realize that they have committed their own set of sins. They've done their own things that they're remorseful for. And they realize that for some of those things, they'll never be able to make up for them. And this is why people believe in world religions, because they believe in something that is redemptive beyond just their own behavior. And therefore, there's a concept of spiritual redemption. Now, this appears in lots of different kinds of um, of places. It could be from, you know, there's forms of it existing in Eastern religions. There's forms of it existing in Western religions. I'm using those terms very broadly. But that's why that exists. And that's why Darth Vader <laughs> seems to work out. But if again, if he was partying with the Ewoks, we do not want that. And we would not accept that because just doing one act does not make up for killing a bunch of younglings in the past. So there is that, there's that sense of weightiness and the, and the difference uh, between the two. And I see uh, Josh Taylor from modern mouse is in the chat too. So what's up, Josh, by the way, if you guys, if you guys in the chat want me to address any other specific kind of kinds of character uh, deaths, just leave those in the comments and I'll, and I'll see if I can get to them. But let's talk about Kylo Ren for a minute. Cause Kylo Ren is in an interesting case. Now, um, I am also going to tell you that the discomfort, in my opinion, pertaining to Kylo Ren and his character death um, is specifically uh, related to the storytelling and the writing. And so we can draw it back to some of, we can come to some conclusions about the way that character is written as to why there are people who are struggling with it. Um, the first thing that we could say is that does Kylo Ren need to have, does he need to have a spiritually redemptive death or could he have a physically um, redemptive death? Now, going back to the Darth Vader example, what am I talking about? He did bad things. Could he do good things and balance his own scales? Or does he need for the force to tell him that he's accepted despite the, the bad things that he has done? So this is where it gets a little bit tricky because um, people are going to have differences of opinion. <laughs> There's a lot of opinions about Kylo Ren. And so from a writer's, I'm going to tell you what, I'm going to tell you what I think from a writer's perspective. You can tell me what you think in the chat. Um, 
from a from an audience perspective or if you're a writer from a writer perspective kylo ren was worshiping his grandfather who had killed younglings but why but why was he worshiping his grandfather well he was worth worshiping his grandfather partially because his uncle um was trying to teach him the ways of the light side apparently doing a pretty bad job not supporting him in terms of his emotional and spiritual needs kylo ren was struggling a lot with his parents um and also struggling with like how to use the force and what the force meant and what the the rest of the jedi amounted to and it seems like based on what we see about luke's character that luke was struggling with the legacy of the jedi council trying to bring about something new but maybe feeling like he wasn't getting that far and then there's the conflict between luke and kylo ren which which basically solidifies Kylo Ren's downward spiral, right? Before that, we can imagine that Kylo Ren was probably struggling, probably very angst, angsty in his struggle, um, which we will forgive people for being angsty because we all realize that angst is part of life. And so when we're dealing with trauma, we all sort of understand that like, okay, so someone will do something when they're experiencing trauma and we'd like to be supportive of them when they're doing that. That so that makes sense. It makes sense that we would like be like, okay, so Kylo's struggling here, but we see a Luke that does not really support Kylo because Luke has a for force vision of Kylo doing some pretty horrific things, and then Luke thinks, oh, well, maybe the light side of the force is telling me that I need to end Kylo Ren, and so maybe I better end Kylo Ren. So there's that that happens, um, and when that happens that sets kylo off down the dark side path why because the people who are saying that they're supposed to be compassionate and they're supposed to be all about justice are literally lighting their lightsaber in my tent or in my little hut and so the basic conclusion that kylo comes to is well the people who say that they're doing these things for these reasons are not good people they're trying to, he's gonna try to kill me i'm just an angsty um teenager at this point so this is crazy and so kylo goes off down a path of the dark side but kylo is very conflicted in his path of the dark side in fact his little tantrums seem to be him thinking like how do i drum up anger how do i drum up more anger because i can't fully turn to the dark side here and i would really like to now here's where the writing comes into it and here's where the writing plays a really big role and before I say that, I'll just say that uh, Josh Taylor, Modern Mouse, in the comments said, Kylo Ren was worshiping Vader, not Anakin. I think that's a difference. He saw the power and respect Vader had. I don't think he ever mentions the time of Anakin. And that's true. That's true. That's going to be that's going to be a, a nuanced point there. But then I would also argue, Josh, that Vader doesn't become Vader if he doesn't do the things that Vader did to leading up to his becoming Vader. So I think you're right. He may not be. He may not. I don't think um, Kylo Ren. Again, a misguided person, a misguided person will follow someone not for all of the horrific things they've done or are doing, but rather for something that they look at that the person has done that they respect. Now, why is that? Because nobody's perfect. So you're never going to be able to follow a perfect person because perfect people don't exist. Now, there are religions, um, like I've said before, I'm a Christ follower, so I believe Jesus Christ was a perfect person, fully God, fully human though, right? Different, A little bit different than you and I. The um, 
fully fully tempted like you and I, but that's a whole other podcast. Um, so there's a difference. There's a difference that we have here, right? Um, Kylo Ren is so to Josh's point. Kylo Ren is, um, and then Josh says, yeah, that's why people say, do as I say, not as I do, and get respect, and ultimately lose their authority. And he's saying Kylo felt that. So the why is why is Kylo Ren being looked up to, looking up to Darth Vader, predominantly because Darth Vader was able to demand respect, and Kylo is a person who doesn't know how to demand respect. He's not getting, he doesn't seem to be getting a lot of love and support from his parents, even though Leia seems to say things that would as you would assume she's loving and supporting of him but he you don't see a lot of that happen in kylo's life so kylo again is very angsty he's trying to figure things out um and he probably respects the power vader had and realizes that this is a family member that i can gravitate toward so to, to josh's point that's a fair take but also when we start to worship people who are not perfect <laughs> and we put ourselves in a position of like now having to deal with okay that's that's are you saying that Vader was a good person? Um, and there's something that Kylo likes about Vader, but Vader was a horrific person, including Anakin before being Vader on his journey to being Vader. So it's just weird. So Kylo's in a very weird place. And we can give him the benefit of the doubt because again, we can deal with angsty people and realize that angsty people will start to look towards acceptance in places they shouldn't look towards acceptance. I mean, this is a really big problem in the modern world with tribalism is that it is it is uh, likely that a lot of the really angsty people who then act out on that angst, right? And uh, unfortunately, over the weekend, we had these horrific shootings again in the United States. Well, part of that is what? It's part of people looking up to or looking for acceptance in another tribe, gaining some acceptance, gaining some people pushing them towards behavior that is not good. And then them fully living into that behavior. So Kylo's in the angsty stage, at least. How far along is he? Well, this is where it gets pretty dicey. Because you'll remember at the, the beginning of The Force Awakens, when Kylo Ren um, is looking for... Um, he's looking uh, for... He's, Poe is giving the... Uh, <laughs> Poe is, po is at the... I can't remember the guy's name. Or the, the, the village that Poe is, is going to. But essentially, they're looking for a way to find Luke Skywalker. And um, they're going to get the... I guess they're getting a map from him, right? They're getting a map from the guy. Um, ah, Santeca. Laura Santeca, is that correct? That, that, might be a, that might be wrong. That might be right. Let me know in the comments. Anyways, when Kylo Ren visits that little city, he has all of the stormtroopers kill everybody. It's a very Vader move. It's a very... The, not only the men, but the women and the children, too. Like, kills all of them, right? So now do you see that as Kylo being angsty and like doing fighting a fighting a war with uh, a group that he thinks is evil? Because, again, a war is different than a personal action, right? Because a war is like, well, if we don't overcome these people, then our tribe will be will be hurt by it. And that's an awful thing. And we but we we understand that people will do evil. And sometimes that evil gets into the group and then the groups go against each other. So war is slightly different than a personal choice I make. If I'm uh, it's, a, it's a little bit most people would say it's a little bit different. There are some pacifists who would say it's not different at all. So I'm not even going to get into those philosophies. I'm just going to say in general, from a storytelling perspective, especially that um, historically, throughout the course of human history, we view uh, committing 
uh, killing someone differently depending on the circumstance that it's in, right? If it's done defensively, um, then we say, well, what you what choices did you have? You the people were coming at you; they were probably going to kill you. You didn't have a lot of choices. So, from a writing perspective, we have to, and from an audience perspective, we have to ask ourselves with Kylo. How, is he too far gone or is he not too far gone? Now, I would I would suggest to you that the storytellers are telling us that he's not too far gone, to Josh's point, that he's still kind of angst, angsty. He doesn't really fully understand. He does give the order to kill that village. That's probably the worst thing we see him do, except when he faces off against his dad, <laughs> right? Except when he faces off against his dad. Now, we could have a whole conversation about the Han Solo death as well but I'm not going to focus there as well. I'm, I'm, as much, I'm going to go back to the Kylo piece for a second here. The reason why this gets so confusing with Kylo Ren is because I think that J.J. Abrams and Ryan Johnson both have very different perspectives on Kylo Ren and what Kylo Ren, who Kylo Ren actually is. Um, and this is because they're two different writers and they're going to write different things into their stories. Because if you look at J.J. Abrams, what J.J. Abrams does is he says, here's a conflicted kid who is growing into an adult who's still conflicted, has some very difficult things he has to deal with in his life, but he's inching towards making worse and worse decisions. And those decisions are shooting up a city and then killing his father. Now, J.J. Abrams left the door open a little bit on Kylo Ren because Kylo Ren admits in his pain on the bridge with Solo, he admits that he doesn't really have the capacity of joining the dark side on his own, which means that there's still some good in him. You know, this is the Luke perspective on people. And he says, I need your help in this. And it seems to be that Luke Sky or that um, Han Solo is maybe even saying to him, like, if there's anything I can do to end some of the pain that you have, I'll do it, including letting you uh, kill me with your lightsaber. Now, we don't know all of that. That whole scene plays out in a, in a way that some people are going to end that movie saying there's no way you can redeem Kylo because he killed one of my favorite characters. Some people are going to end that saying there's no way you can you can do that because um, but I will also tell you that J.J. Abrams left the door open because Han Solo, except at the end of the movie, wasn't doing the right things necessarily. Remember, we thought Han Solo grew out of being a smuggler and doing illegal things and being like a um, being a really scoundrel type of person into being a person who was going to side with the with the light side and side with the good and side with the rebellion and do the right things. But he didn't because he went back to some of those things, which means that we can understand, again, why Kylo feels the way that he feels. And so in that moment, the storytellers um, kind of left the door open for Kylo Ren to go multiple ways. Some people who watch that scene, though, will say, you killed off a guy who, yeah, sure, he's a scoundrel, but he was always trying to do things for the good. And if you kill off that family member um that's irredeemable to me like from a from a from a, again from a physical standpoint um that's like, how can you how can you do that like how can you say that this character could possibly be good again i think that there are some subtleties in the way that jj abrams did it that allow for that not to be the case predominantly because i think that han solo was accepting of that moment um and so maybe that there could be a thing that we think in our heads is well maybe this is all part of kylo's journey and he's going to be this savior of the galaxy, but he needs to go get work through some of his traumatic issues before he can get there. Okay. 
So let's just say that that's the J.J. Abrams perspective. At the end of the movie, Kylo is kind of in this middle ground, but not headed towards a, down a good path, right? He can't be headed towards down a good path. He's killed a city of people. He's um, and then he's also um, he's also um, killed his father. Now this is where it gets really, really confusing as an audience member because the writers have such different perspectives on this character. Um, and I really appreciate Ryan Johnson's perspective on this character because Ryan Johnson makes this character even more interesting. So Ryan Johnson's perspective on this character is that he is being controlled by Snoke and that Snoke is in the back of his mind um, been subtly trying to turn him, which means that Kylo Ren is under some sort of uh, brain manipulation, if not if not full <laughs> full blown. Um, and, and we got a hint of that, by the way, in. Uh, in the first film in the force awakens because i believe leia brings it up in that film if she doesn't then she does bring it up in um, the last jedi which i need to watch again so um now we have a character in the last jedi and what does kylo ren do in the last jedi well this is where it gets very very fascinating because the writer has a very different view of where kylo could be headed now it's not to say that ryan johnson in this moment contradicts what jj abrams was trying to set up I don't believe that that's true. I do believe that Ryan Johnson does contradict some things that J.J. Um, Abrams was trying to set up, but it's not related to Kylo Ren. And this is where it gets really fascinating from a writer's perspective. And this is why the sequel trilogy is such a disaster of, of, of uh, sequential storytelling. And it, by the way, everybody agrees on that. Uh, not everybody. I mean, there's some people, I actually like the sequel trilogy, but it's, it is really messy. Um, but if you, if you are on the side of like, you know, the extreme like Raylo uh, group, you still think it's a mess of a story. If you're on the side of the, I really love the original trilogy and I love the homage that the force awakens, but you still say it's a mess. So it's messy. Let's just, let's just admit that it's messy. So what do we see from Kylo Ren that even changes it even further? Now, Ryan Johnson did um, two things. He made Kylo Ren far more interesting as a character and also really hurt Kylo Ren in terms of the third movie. And why? Why is that the case? And I, I, I've explained this on other shows before, so I apologize if you already heard me say it, but I feel pretty strongly about this is what happened. Kylo Ren becomes more interesting. Why does Kylo Ren become more interesting? Because he realizes, Kylo Ren recognizes something that a lot of the world does not recognize. Ray does not recognize this, for example. But Kylo Ren recognizes that you cannot rely upon the wisdom of the older generation fully. Right? So he, he tried to rely on the wisdom of the older generation with Luke. That did not really work out very well for him. Uh, caused him a lot of extra trauma. He could not rely upon his parents' wisdom. That was difficult for him to rely on as well. Uh, and so he is basically realizing as it pertains to Snoke, I can't rely on Snoke's wisdom either. Snoke's not here for me. Snoke's not trying to benefit me. Snoke's causing some of my trauma. And he sees in Ray that she's seeking some of the wisdom of the older generation. Now, this is not to suggest that the older generation does not have wisdom. Although I think Ryan Johnson's film pushes that narrative as far as it can without actually saying that, because even the, even the Jedi, uh, books that are being burned um yoda is kind of like who cares right so um i think i think ryan johnson is pushing a narrative that says we have to come up with we have to build our own world every generation has to build their own world they can't just rely on the previous generation's view of what the world should be so 
to to Josh's um, comment here, I, I think where he says that um, do as I say, not as I do, and then they ultimately lose their authority. Kylo Ren has seen that. He's seen it not only from the light side, but also from the dark side. Now, what does Kylo Ren also see? He also sees Rey, who is a very kindred spirit to him. Why is that? Rey's parents abandoned her. Kylo feels like his parents abandoned him. They're both going through a lot of drama together. So, yeah, there's some... Uh, there's some, I can see myself in you. I can see that you're seeking the, the wisdom of the older generations, but I'm going to tell you something. The wisdom of the older generations is not fantastic wisdom. Now, that is all really compelling, really interesting, and sets up Kylo Ren for a, a, a potential redemptive sort of arc because he he and Ray can work together to understand what it means to be um, to be good, to be on the light side. Here's the here's the real issue about where it started to fall apart, though, in my opinion, is that Ryan Johnson showcases that Kylo Ren is not fully gone by doing what? What does he have Kylo Ren do that shows that Kylo Ren is not fully devoted himself to the dark side, to the Sith specifically? He has Kylo Ren kill Snoke, right? <laughs> this is a big moment in the film. Now, that creates a gigantic problem for the third film. So why does it create a gigantic problem for the third film? There's no way that General Hux, who is mostly played for comedy, there's one moment where he has a big speech in front of everybody and he's like, you know, sounds like it's like, it's almost like you're watching like Mussolini or Hitler or something like that. But even in that speech, we don't actually see Hux ever as a person who could be the big bad. He is not. He is not the big bad. He is not the person who's going to come in with a bunch of ships and say, I'm now the ruler of the galaxy. You must adhere to whatever it is that I say. Okay. That's a big problem because now we have a galaxy with no giant evil. So if Kylo Ren is going to redeem himself, what is he going to do to redeem himself? Is he going to fight off you know, the remnants of what the First Republic is or um, or exactly what is it that he's going to do? And who is the who who is the people that we're gonna fight in this in this whole sequence as well? So here's where it gets really dicey because now the third storyteller, which is again JJ Abrams, it would have been interesting if we would have gone down um Trevorrow's route, but we get JJ Abrams again instead. And JJ Abrams says, Oh man. Kylo Ren seems like he's actually not as bad as I thought. Now I have a choice because the door was left open on Kylo Ren by JJ Abrams in the force awakens. Ryan Johnson further left the door open because he didn't Kylo Ren actually did some things that a good character might do. He saved Ray. He killed Snoke. He's on a path that could be taking him towards, um, you know, a full redemption arc despite the fact that he killed Han Solo. And despite the fact that he's had some um, some other things that he's done now, by the way, he did not fully um, he did not fully kill Leia. There was a moment there we did not do that. So again, we're leaving the door open on Kylo Ren on the end of Kylo Ren's story. So both movies have left left the door open on Kylo Ren's story, but the middle movie did away with the biggest bad. The Snoke could have been the biggest bad. He could have been the Emperor but he was taken off the table. Now I know why Ryan Johnson did that because it's really fascinating moment in the film and it leaves the door open on Kylo Ren. So I understand why he did it as a writer, but he, you would have need to have two more movies to finish this story uh, in a way that made more sense. If you want to redeem Kylo Ren, 
So this is what Brianna is talking about in her email is that if you want to redeem uh, Kylo Ren uh, and still have him have a life after it, you cannot do that in one film. It's impossible to do it in one film. Why? Because at the end of the film, there was a, there, there was Kylo and Rey saying, and Kylo saying, rule the galaxy with me. Maybe he was going to rule the galaxy in like altruistic good. I doubt it, but maybe. She says, um, no, I'm not going to do that because I don't perceive that you are altruistic good. I believe that you're still struggling and you're still angsty, so I can't rule alongside you. So in the third film, with the biggest bad taken off the table, we really only have two choices. Now, if you can think of a third choice for the film, for the third film, you can let me know about it in the comments down, down below. But I will tell you that the only choice that you really have, or two choices that you really have, is that you introduce another big bad, right? You introduce another big bad character who's even worse than Kylo Ren, and the audience can say, like, this person, this is what we got to fight against. Or you do what J.J. Abrams, or you, which is what J.J. Abrams did, I should say, just to clarify. Or you make Kylo Ren the biggest bad. You turn him full evil. You only really have the two options. Because we need somebody that we need to fight back against. We need somebody that we see as the person who's trying to work on behalf of the dark side. As we see people who are trying to work on behalf of the light side. And so you you leave the audience going like, well, where in the world are they going to go with this? They only have two directions. They introduce somebody that's even worse than Snoke and even worse than Kylo, or they make Kylo full evil, full evil. And if you make him full evil, there's no redemption arc there. The redemption arc is off the table. So the real tragedy is they didn't break that up into two movies and still give us a Kylo Ren redemption arc, but also bring in a new bad that they could have built up over movie number one and then fully realized in movie number two. They didn't do that. They said, this is a trilogy, so it has to end. And therefore, we're going to have to build up a new big bad. Now, um, the reason why that's so difficult is if you're doing a trilogy and you're bringing in a big bad in Act 3 or at the end of Act 2 and the beginning of Act 3, because the trilogy trilogies can be seen as a... Um, trilogies that are serial can be seen as one big narrative arc, right? So by the time you get to the third movie, all the conflict has been set up and now it needs to be kind of resolved in the, thir in the third act. Well, if you're trying to resolve things, it's almost impossible to bring in a new character that no one's ever heard of before and make them the big bad and make them also interesting. So <laughs> instead, J.J. Abrams is like, well, you took Snoke off the table, so I guess I got to bring somebody else on, and he brings on the Emperor. And that causes all kinds of problems, too, and we all know what those problems are. Okay, so uh, that leaves us with, do you redeem Ky Kylo Ren in the third movie, or do you not redeem him? And if you do redeem him, you also, because you've limited yourself to one movie, your ability to redeem him is a very brief amount of time. So to Brianna's point in Brianna's email, which again was a very intelligent email and I appreciate it, Brianna. If you want him redeemed, which is a Star Wars thing to do, <laughs> redemption is part, redemption and, and particularly spiritual redemption are a huge part of Star Wars. And so taking that out of Star Wars would feel incredibly difficult and awkward. And so J.J. Abrams does what he thinks will work, which is he then says that Kylo Ren realizes that Rey is the future, needs to sacrifice himself in order to save Rey so that he can bring about um, any sort of redemption that he needs is happening because he's giving himself to save Rey so that Rey can become the hero. And that is basically uh, 
forced into this spiritual redemption. So my point is, to Brianna's point, and my response to Brianna is, yeah, you're totally right. They're not left with a lot of options. They should have done two films instead of one film. They should have probably redeemed Kylo Ren, and then they would not have had to kill him. But the problem is, is that when you have a limited amount of time and you need, and if you were trying to bring about, if you want Darth Vader partying with the Ewoks and for that to be acceptable, you need to be able to show Darth Vader doing lots and lots and lots of redemptive things to be able to get him to a place where they're like, where everyone would agree in that film, Darth Vader's really redeemed himself. He's not the guy that he used to be. Like he can party with the Ewoks. This is cool. If you want Kylo Ren to be the guy partying with the Ewoks, to be the guy that's partying with the, the, the people at the last minute there, you need to give him time. You need to give him time to go along that, that journey. He has no time if it's only three films. They say it's only three films. You get the Kylo Ren result that you get. So I do think that the point of this video is to say character deaths and wish fulfillment. I, by the way, I don't think that wish fulfillment is always the same thing as not killing off a character um there's also such a thing as cathartic deaths where you kill off a character because they're so bad and so evil that if we were to let them live uh they would go on terrorizing people and so there's such a thing as a cathartic death um john wick is the whole premise of john wick is based off the theory that death can be cathartic now i don't necessarily like that because i don't like revenge being cathartic but i'm just saying there's a giant uh there's a bunch of filmmaking community that, that, and the storytelling community that believes that that's a thing that could be pursued. So there you go. There's Kylo Ren and why I think Kylo Ren's um, death and and redemption, if you believe it was a redemption or they think it was earned is so awkward and why it didn't work from a storytelling perspective is you just don't have the time to tell that story. If you're going to do only three movies, particularly given what happened in the second film. And I don't think that J.J. Abrams was like, I can't make Kylo Ren go full bad guy. So, And if I make him go full bad guy, there's no bringing him back in terms of a redemption. So I think that that's what basically happened with Kylo Ren. And I think that's why that whole series suffers. Um, now, before I move on to the Stranger Things deaths, I do want to, we'll, go, we'll jump to Tala's death really quickly here. Um, because there's another good, uh, healthy complaint about character deaths that we need to address. And I've heard uh, Tala's death called several things, um, some of which I agree with, some of which I do not agree with. Um, one of the things that I heard Tala's death called was fridging. And I actually do not agree that Tala's death is fridging. And here's why I don't believe that it is. Generally speaking, with from the historical context of fridging, there was a character that did not have any agency. It was a free female character who did not have any agency. So, for example, uh, no superpowers. And by the way, the reason it's called fridging is because I believe it's a Green Lantern comic. I'm going to have to do my research, but there's a comic where the hero comes home and finds that his friend, his girlfriend, has been killed and put in his freezer or his refrigerator. Hence the concept of fridging. There is a female character death. The female character did not matter to the story except to bring about a change in the male character and how the male character behaves. So generally speaking, if we break that down a little bit further, there's a female character with no agency who basically is a damsel in distress, who is not only um, somebody that the lead character is going to rescue, but the emotional dis uh, distraught that the male character faces is what then leads him to do the right thing. 
that's usually what's referred to as fridging. Um, Tala's death, I do not think is fridging because one, Tala had all kinds of agency. Tala was her own character, making her own decisions in really powerful ways. Um, and two, I don't actually believe that her death is for the emotional stakes for Obi-Wan. Um, meaning that Obi-Wan um, is uh, a character who's already dealing with a bunch of emotions, um, but in large part has um, already decided that he needs to face Vader in this moment. I don't think he's trying to avoid facing Vader necessarily. I think more of what Tala's death represents is not so much the fridging concept of getting the male character to do something that he that he previously didn't want to do, but rather it is actually it is actually speaking to what the rebellion will become and what people involved in the rebellion will have to sacrifice in order to, to bring about the, the greater good. Now, um, what I think we can look at though, and maybe critique a little bit more is that why do, why is it so often that female characters and characters of color have to die? Um, and now that's a different topic altogether with Tala and could, legitimately be a problem right so we need to look at that differently probably not fridging because tala's death is actually more for leia and more for roken than it is for um obi-wan kenobi in my opinion because we because think about it as a viewer we all know obi-wan kenobi is not going to die we all know what he's going to go on to do and he doesn't seem like he's taking inspiration from tala's death it seems like it's more like we're viewing tala's death as inspiration for what the rebellion needs to do people like tala will need to exist in the rebellion if we're going to defeat the empire. So I don't think fridging is probably what is going on there based on the classic definition of fridging. However, we could, th there is a really good argument to be made. Um, what the force Marie Claire makes this point, I think, and does a good job is that um, it is, it can be a bummer if the only kind of death we can have is a spiritually redemptive death. Now, Note that Tala does not necessarily ha have that because Tala said, I was involved in things I did not want to be involved in, in terms of killing people and fighting for the empire before I realized what the empire was. Then when I realized what the empire was doing and I realized how horrific the empire was, I had my own agency. I changed my mind about the empire being good and I decided to work against the empire. And that's why I've been helping the path. And now I've saved dozens and dozens of people. And she puts a, a notch on her gun uh, or on her holster for every time that um, she's able to save somebody. So Tala has already is already doing the components of physical redemption that we would want to see from a character who could have physical redemption. So her death is not spiritual in nature, but her death is more of a heroic stance against evil than it is um, than it is anything else in particular, in my opinion. So if you are uncomfortable with Tala dying, I think that is probably more of a, ah, oh man, I'm uncomfortable that people have to die in wars. I'm uncomfortable that people have to die fighting for what they believe in. And, or I'm also uncomfortable seeing female and uh, characters of color or female characters of color die to, uh, while the male, the white male character gets to keep on living. That's actually, I think, a decent argument that you could point out here is that uh, that that is um, somewhat problematic. Now, what's interesting about it is, is that the original writer of Obi-Wan has come out and said that he would have had Reva die. Reva doesn't die. Reva, female character of color, doesn't die. So the the writers almost were like, like 
identifying that we don't want to have all of the white male or even just white characters like Leia um, be the only ones that go on living in this series. And so maybe we shouldn't kill off Reva. Now, I think that, that as a storyteller, now you're now you're conflicted, right? Because you're thinking to yourself, well, I want this story to land. I want this story to be perceived as having stakes and be perceived as being important. Um, so to OG's um, earlier comment saying character deaths are needed and stories need to have, because stories need to have stakes, 100% true. The problem is, is that when you run into a cultural framework, which doesn't really, um, which hasn't been fair to some kinds of characters in the past, that cultural framework, now you're thinking to yourself, well, I don't want to repeat the mistakes of people in the past of only showcasing white male characters who get to keep on living. Um, and so now what should I do about this character of Reva? Do I think it would have been more powerful if Reva would have died in that moment? I think it probably would have been a little bit more powerful from an emotional response, from a character uh, journey standpoint. However, I also think that that's a little bit unfair to a character like Reva. Now, we don't know Reva's backstory. We don't know how much Reva's death or not death is redemptive or not redemptive because we don't totally know. We haven't, I don't believe that we've seen her do anything really, really bad, except for we did see her, um, we did see her, uh, you know, have something to do with the one Jedi's death. And she did try to kill that one Jedi at the beginning of the Kenobi series. So we can assume that she's been trying to kill Jedi and maybe has been killing Jedi. So how much how re much redemption can she have and how much of that is spiritual versus kind of interpersonal or, or, or physical? I don't know. So I think Tala's death for me actually worked really well. Not having Reva die did lower the stakes a little bit of what's going on there. We may get a Reva series that may explain to us a little bit more about what's going on. I'm not sure. But it's at least worthy of considering having a discussion about, about, about what that looks like. So let's jump into a different series altogether. Let's jump into Stranger Things. So this is spoilers for Stranger Things season four, which just ended. It's volume two just ended. And I, I do not want you to get spoiled. because This is a phenomenal show. One of my, it's my favorite show of all time. And now, and um, I don't want you to get spoiled. So jump off if you haven't watched Stranger Things. But in Stranger Things volume two, we get several big character deaths. One of them is um, Dr. Brenner. Dr. Brenner's death is a... Um, is a an interesting one because I wasn't going to bring it up, but just really quickly, the reason why Dr. Brenner's death is interesting and the reason why it should be part of a conversation is because Dr. Brenner has been operating as uh, a person who is doing things that are not good for the greater good. He's doing things that are causing even trauma amongst the kids that he's working with, even though I do believe that he does actually love them. I don't think he would shed a tear if he's a complete psychopath uh, or sociopath and doesn't feel emotions. He does shed his tears. I do believe he loves the kids, but he's doing something for a greater good. So when he says, uh, 11, I need you to understand, and 11 basically leaves, I think it's some of the most powerful, authentic, truthful writing that they could have written. Why? Because in that moment, that character needs to be told that, that what they were doing was redemptive. They were going to fight the upside down and they had to fight the upside down no matter what means necessary. So that character believe, firmly believes that there's not any evidence to showcase that that character is totally wrong, by the way, because if he didn't train L and wasn't a little bit harsh in the way he was training L, would she be able to stand up against one? They may 
they may address that in season five. I don't know, but we do need to at least consider that as a, a, in our in our breaking down the character. However, that does not make up for the trauma that he caused with all the kids. It does not make up for the way that he treated one along the way. It does not make up for the way he treated 11 along the way. And so despite the fact that he can say that he loved her, which I think he probably did, he also did these things that are not good. And so by Elle saying, you know what? I really don't understand. I think that that's, I mean, she doesn't say anything at all, but that's what she's communicating to him. Phenomenal. Great writing. In other words, we're not going to make your death redemptive for you. We're going to be more realistic about it in, in, in terms of how people would actually feel if they'd had to deal with a guy like this. And then L um, and then L goes on to basically do the the whole volume two of um, Stranger Things is very reminiscent to me of Star Wars in some ways, because this is like if if Yoda's dying and Yoda's saying, Don't face Vader, and L believes in her heart, but my friends are in jeopardy and I have to go face Vader. You're dealing with a very similar circumstance there, which I think is really fascinating. But notice how um, it is not a redemptive death for Brenner. It is really more of a realistic, reality-based death. This is a guy who did some horrible things. He did some probably some good things. We don't really know. But hopefully the Upside Down will be defeated because of some of his work. But at the same time, we don't understand why he did it this way. seems like he could have done... Think about um, Brenner versus uh, Professor X. Professor X trains up a whole bunch of mutant kids who... He does not traumatize in most circumstances. There are, now, there are some comics that have tried to retcon that a little bit and said, like, <laughs> Professor X was causing some trauma. But um, that's a different view. That's a different view than what we traditionally get. So this Dr. Brenner was not um, was not that character. It was not Professor X. But the one I the one I the character death that I really wanted to talk about um, was Eddie, because Eddie's character death has a lot to do with. So I think Brenner's death was really good writing. Eddie's death is good writing as well. But there are very different things at play. I thought we were going to lose um, one of the more main characters from a character death standpoint, uh, which we really didn't. We didn't really lose any main characters here. Um, we may in season five, who knows, but we didn't here. Um, so let's talk about Eddie's death because Eddie's death is an interesting one because Eddie's death serves the plot and serves his character development. In a little bit of an uncomfortable way, though, um, because Eddie is a kid who is a kid who's living in a world that does not see Eddie as being valuable. They see Eddie more so as a, an outcast. He runs the Hellfire Club America at that time, which is showcased in the show, is viewing the Hellfire D&D clubs as potentially uh, satanic. Um, I remember that from when I was a kid. Um, and... Eddie then is this outcast. He's a kid who is doing, he's listening to Iron Maiden. He's listening to heavy metal. It's like lots of things about death that he's interested in. There's uh, dungeons and dragons that he's interested in. And then he's working with um, some younger kids at the school. We know he's older because he hasn't graduated for the last couple of years. And he's thinking he's going to graduate this year and he's influencing younger kids. So there's like some, there's some discomfort there. Now we all know uh, with historical context and with um, the context of the show, that Eddie's not a bad guy. Um, he has had a troubled life. He doesn't have parents. He's living with his uncle. So if he does have parents, they if his parents are alive, they are not around for him. Um, he's living with his uncle who sort of is around for him, but he seems like he has his own demons, even though we don't really fully know his character all that well. And so one of the other things that Eddie does is he actually is a drug dealer. So 
He's a very complex, very interesting character and feels like a character we may have actually seen in real life in the 1980s. Um, and because of his influence around this group of kids who we know he cares deeply for and who we know he's not trying to lead down the wrong path, there's some discomfort with, with that because as a drug dealer who's leading a D&D group of younger kids, the out side perception could be like do you want your kids playing D games with a drug dealer who's older than them like it's a little it's a little uncomfortable but we know eddie because we see eddie in different contexts and we also know that we also know that um, eddie's arch rival jason is like the jock and the jock is actually we also know from history that the people who were perceived as jocks didn't always end up being the best people maybe they were you know some of the bullies and stuff like that and jason has some of those qualities although i think that they're trying to paint jason as the all-american kid he turns into a bully over the course of time which happens for a lot of um, people in real life too so these are circumstances that we've seen before in real life so here's where it gets interesting with eddie munson's character is that eddie munson's character as he goes through the series is doing all of the right things in terms of trying to help the other kids. And he's doing a really good job of being a good influence on them, but they're also showcasing their love for Eddie because he's their friend. And these kids are really good about saving their friends. And then there's this through line of Eddie's character that says like, I'm constantly the one that's running. And I think what Eddie means by that is, is that he's experienced enough trauma that he doesn't put all of his energy into positive things. He besides D and D maybe, and his friends, his his Hellfire Club friends. But he he then tries to take the easy way out. You deal drugs because you need to make money the easy way, not because you I need to make money. Like he could get a job, right? But then he thinks that well, society is going to reject me. They're going to have me cut my hair, so I'm not going to do that. I don't want to do that. I don't want to fit in with society. So then I'm pushed to the edges of society. And now I have to, to be able to make money probably for him and his uncle, I'm assuming, because they don't live in like, they don't live in a really nice place um, th that he's making money for both of them and he's dealing drugs to do it. So we kind of understand why Eddie's doing that. And we don't vilify, he's not vilified for that, by the way, we're kind of understanding that he is a, he is uh, a person that society has failed and that he doesn't know how to overcome um, society's perception of him and society's desire to kind of keep pushing him away. So there's Eddie. Part of Eddie's character then is he believes that by being rejected by society, he started to do the things that are not in alignment with what we think is healthy behavior. And Eddie kind of knows that because he tells us that he's been running from things. So Eddie's running. What does a character who's running need to do? Well, a character who's running oftentimes needs to embrace the people around them who are trying to bring them up out of their trauma not necessarily to bring them back into society because the last thing we want to see is eddie become jason we're not looking for people to become jason right like that's the that's the society's perceived really good i got it together person who we clearly know does not have it together so we're not trying to create more jasons here <laughs> so we don't want we don't want eddie to turn into jason we want eddie to embrace his friends uh rely upon his friends help his friends overcome uh, the the shame and guilt that Vecna is trying to bring about that brings about the darkness. The shame and guilt brings about the darkness. We don't want Eddie to fall into the shame and guilt and then be succumbed to the darkness. We want him to be pulled out of that darkness, join the friend group, deal with all of that. Okay, so from a writing perspective, we've set up Eddie as the main murderer of three kids in their horrific deaths. Um, three high school kids have died 
and it seems like it's pointing towards Eddie. Now, what do we also know about Stranger Things? In Stranger Things, only a limited number of people can understand, at least through season four, only a limited number of people can understand that the Upside Down exists because that takes away from the mystery. It takes away from the drama. Uh, if we keep that contained to a small group of people dealing with this existential threat of the Upside Down, it's much more compelling from a storytelling standpoint. Otherwise, you get into a story that's going to be like, uh, you know, giant armies battling one another. Uh, that's not what this is. This is this is more character driven and uh, very 80s where it's like a small group of underdogs versus the the big bad. So we don't um, we don't reveal that the upside down exists to every, anybody. Now, that's really, really important because if from a plot perspective, if Eddie doesn't die from a plot perspective, we have to then deal with Eddie in the real world, having everyone assume that Eddie killed three people and did it horrifically. And so Eddie, if he, if he gets back to the real world um, at any point in time, he's spending time with Victor Creel, by the way, who's also innocent. So we, we also don't really want Eddie to have the Victor Creel experience, right? Like we, we like Eddie. Eddie's awesome. So he's a very misunderstood character, but he's awesome. So we, we can't really have Eddie re-enter the real world in the same way without also vindicating him by saying it was the upside down or maybe it was some other character that they could have that they could have said but that's kind of distracting us from where the story is going so from a plot standpoint not from an emotional standpoint not from eddie's character standpoint that's separate we'll talk about that in a minute but from a plot standpoint it's almost impossible to bring eddie back because then season five would in some way shape or form have to deal with eddie <laughs> being this horrific human and season five probably does not want to deal with that so from a writing plotting perspective, Eddie's death actually makes all the sense in the world because it's it would set up another story that is not the story that we are attempting to tell. And now it is theoretically possible that you could have done a spin-off series on Eddie and you could have bring bring him back in a different way and say so he didn't really die in the upside down, he was actually able to make it back or maybe, you know, maybe I hope that all these characters don't get resurrected when the upside down is defeated, but you know, that's possibility too. And as Eddie has a shoot uh, offshoot of something. Um, we'll see. We'll see. The Upside Down is now much more obvious than it was before in the real world. So there is that. There's a lot of things that they can change with this. But I mean, the Duffer brothers have presented us with such compelling storytelling that I'm I'm confident in what they're going to do. Okay, so, that, so we can't have Eddie come back from a plot standpoint. From a character standpoint, then, um, one of the things that is, I believe, true, and Death of a Bounty Hunter is like, my book is directly about this is that if you're not going to run, there are consequences for not running. There are consequences, downstream consequences for a character for running. So I don't want to, I don't want to pretend that that's not true. That's true. But there are also consequences for characters who decide just different kinds of consequences. Consequences for a character who runs are further isolation, further problems with oftentimes with the law or with society in general. So as long as Eddie runs, he will always be perceived as an isolated out there weirdo. And that's going to cost him isolation causes lots of really significant problems, drug addiction, addiction to other things. Isolation is a bad deal. We don't want characters to be isolated. We don't want them to stay isolated. Okay. 
So, uh, so Eddie can't keep running, but from a plot perspective, Eddie can't come back to real life. So here is uh, Eddie saying, I'm not going to run anymore. I'm going to stand up. And when, it, when he stands up and when he says, I'm going to actually save my friends because I've realized that society doesn't understand me, but my friends do. And I really want to protect my friends at this point, And I'm going to stop running. That also has stopping running has consequences. Now, does that mean that the character has to die because they stopped running? No, not at all. Right. Like when we stop running from the things that we're running from in real life, what it means is usually that you have to face something that is incredibly uncomfortable and fearful to you. Usually because you have a shame and guilt complex and you need to then tell someone I have wronged you or I've wronged society or whatever. And I, but I need you to trust me. I need to be accepted. I need to come back and be a part of your community. That's like reconciliation basically. Right. Well, um, in Eddie's case, Eddie can't reconcile with, with normal society. That's impossible from a plot standpoint. So Eddie then has to reconcile with his friends and reconcile with the fact that he's been running and that we showcase a character change in him. What is that character change? In this case, that character change would be uh, him standing up for his friends. The, the result of standing up for your friends is that you have to take some level of a gut punch. In this case, it's a literal gut punch and it's uh, the upside down bats eating him. Um, Modern Mouse, uh, Josh Taylor says, Eddie's worldview is me versus the world because society hasn't shown him love. He's a good example of a troubled youth being misunderstood. His arc ends being loved and understood by his new family. And that's exactly right. And he's, and, and he's understood and loved by his new family, but he has not embraced them until he goes back and says, I'm not going to run anymore. I'm not going to hide from my friends. I'm going to fight with my friends. And there are consequences to fighting with his friends. In this case, it's his death. So, um, you know, you can make an argument that it's a bummer that he doesn't, he's, his redemption is 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 realizing that he is fully loved by his new friend group. That's his redemption, right? He he would have been he was already fully loved, but his he himself needed to see that by not running anymore. In other words, he needed to accept it. Um, he needed to be he needed to accept that his new family loved him, and that's what he does. And this is what Josh is saying in the, in the chat. He finally accepts it. So. You could, you could make an argument that like, well, so people don't need to die when that happens. And that's true. But Eddie kind of needs to, because of the plot that I was talking about, Eddie can't come back to the real world at this point. Like it's going to be giant chaos if he does. And it's much worse for him than, than it is death. And this is where I do think I need to stop and just pause for a minute to say, your perspective on death is going to matter about whether or not you want characters to die. Um, if your perspective on death is that death is the end and that there is nothing beyond death. There's no such thing as an afterlife. There's no such thing as um, uh, reincarnation. There's no sense that uh, that there's something in the beyond. Then character deaths are going to hit you different than if you do see that there um, is potential afterlife. If death is not the worst possible thing that could ever happen, it will then change your perspective on whether or not a character should or should not die. Um, and so that's going to be something that is personal to you. That is not the storytellers. The storytellers can hint at that because the storytellers can basically hint that there is an afterlife. The storytellers can, can, can hint that there is not an afterlife that can go either way. Um, some characters, for example, when we, when we're told that there's not an afterlife and that death is nothingness, some characters, nothingness is actually 
refreshing to them based on the trauma that they've experienced on planet earth. So there's different ways to do that, but just recognize that we're probably all carrying something with us. Like, so for example, I carry with me um, something that says that death is, in fact, I have a line in my book that says, um, where one of the characters says, uh, humans always think that death is the worst thing. Um, and that's indicating that maybe it's not. Do we know? Should we at least ask the question about whether or not that um, death is the, the, there are, and I think there are actually far things that are worse than death, right? Like having really, really bad trauma in life is, is really, really a big struggle. So I think that that can be actually worse than death. So your perspective on death will shape some of this stuff. Eddie's death is not a spiritual death uh, at all, the way that Vader's was. So Eddie's redemption is not, uh, Eddie's not being redeemed. Eddie is realizing that he finally achieved what he could not achieve in the real world. But in the upside down, he achieves being a part of a tribe that loves him and being able to love them back. That's what Eddie's change in his character is. Um, so pretty interesting stuff so far. One, uh, I did want to talk about two more things really quickly before we end it. One of them is that different societies will view death differently. By the way, if there's any other character deaths you want me to address while I'm still talking, leave them in the comments. But um, society, different societies do view death differently and the implications of death differently. So I was really, I was watching recently Tokyo Vice, which I had some podcasts about with some friends, including um, Dale Wentland. He and I talked about the culture of in Japan. Japan has a very strong honor culture. Now, America has a very, uh, when I say America, North America has a very strange amalgamation of a lot of different kinds of cultures. We, we call it a melting pot um, because <laughs> different cultures have influenced uh, the North America in different ways. And honor culture is uh, that your honor is of the utmost importance. And anything that would call into question your honor uh, would be hugely negative to you overall, right? And so an honor culture are the kind of um, cultures that deal with, again, shame and guilt very differently. Shame and guilt um, are going to be seen as you did something shameful, you should be guilty, and you need to redeem yourself by getting back to a state of honor, right? And so in Tokyo Vice, the show, we see people who are in, um, in debt, that debt is perceived as being a horrific thing for society because your debt means that you can't pay off what you owe to other people. And those other people are now suffering by not, be get, not getting income from you. And so therefore you are liable for that. And you should be shameful and guilty about it. And we see that showcased really well in Tokyo Vice. And in, and in an honor culture, um, oh, we got, we got a comment from Tell Talks. Thanks for joining Tell Talks. Appreciate it. And um, he's talking about Eddie's death here. We were just talking about a second ago. Felt Eddie's death was fitting, but very predictable. Real shame we won't see him again. I agree with that. I totally agree with that. It is, it is a shame. It was pretty predictable because of the plot needs, right? And so if we as an audience, by the way, just to follow up on that really quick because of Teltox's comment here. If we as an audience um, feel something, but also realize that it was done sort of because of the plot, that's a disappointing feeling sometimes because we can say something like, well, I was feeling really emotionally connected to that character, but the plot made him die. That sucks. That, that I will say that that's a bummer. And that, and I think that that's what you mean by predictable too. tell talks is that like the 
the predictability of it then is takes away from the impact a little bit, takes away from the stakes a little bit. Um, and that is something that happens. But back to Tokyo Vice. So Tokyo Vice is these characters in this um, honor culture. We see some honor culture in North America, and then we don't see some honor culture in, in North America. Some of the best examples of honor culture in North America are gang related stuff, right? You're a member of the gang. You can't, you can't snitch on the gang. You can't um, do things that the gang says you shouldn't do. Um, so that's similar to what we see in Tokyo Vice because we're dealing with the Yakuza. And that's a very much an honor-based culture. And so there are several character deaths in Tokyo Vice that are based purely on honor. You did the wrong thing. You should be shame and guilty. The only There's nothing else you can do besides kill yourself. Because we've decided as a society that if you were to kill yourself now, there's actually reasons for why. So, for example... Um, in the, the way that the setup is is uh, for Tokyo Vice, this is a minor spoiler, it's not major. Uh, the setup of Tokyo Vice is actually saying that if you have a debt, one of the ways of getting out of that debt is to use your personal life insurance policy as a way to pay off the debt. So why are people being pressured into committing suicide? Because you can rectify the situation. You are in debt. You owe people money. But you can rectify the situation and we're in an honor and shame culture and we're in an honor and, and guilt and shame culture. You can rectify the situation by killing yourself because then the money will actually get paid. Right. So because your life insurance will pay it. So an honor culture treats death even differently than we might treat death in in North America. Um, in the Western in Western societies, it's treated a little bit differently, though. I, like I said, we have subcultures in the North America that are honor-based subcultures. And the reason I bring that up is because we also have to recognize as storytellers that when you go to write a story, when you are dealing with different cultural norms, the perceptions of death in those cultures is very different. Um, and I wanted to bring that up because we could see, like, so if we go back to Tala's death, for example, right? Um, you could make an argument that in an honor culture, if Tala realizes that the, the entity that she has been a part of is causing her to lose honor because she's the empire is acting her to act in a way that is completely shameful, then you could, you could make the, make the argument that in that culture, Tala's death would have been seen as like, that's what you would do. Of course, because your honor is at stake and it's better to die than have your honor questioned. Um, so we, I think we need to identify that too. It's like, Every single culture, as they view the material, is going to view the material a little bit differently. And sometimes it helps to understand what cultural perspective exists um, before we make a judgment call on whether or not on how we feel about how the character actually died. Because again, the the Eddie the Eddie's character story is going to be a little bit similarly that way too, right? Like if we looked at it from an honor culture standpoint, we would have said like, "Well, man, like the honorable thing to do is to restore yourself to your community." And this goes back to watch some of the samurai movies, right? Like uh, this goes back to if you did something dishonorable as a samurai, you should fall on your sword, right? Got a comment from uh, Modern Mouse, Josh. I know you're not a Walking Dead fan. Oh, I was a Walking Dead fan. <laughs> I was a Walking Dead fan. Um, but he says, I know you're not a Walking Dead fan, but why do you think that show lost its audience over time while other shows don't? Game of Thrones, Stranger Things, as it pertains to um, building up and then killing characters. Ooh, that is a fantastic question. I was going to get ready to wrap up the show and then Josh comes in with the heater. Okay, so let's talk about this for a second. 
let me explain first of all why I became why I was a Walking Dead fan and then why I became less of a Walking Dead fan. I'll explain that really quick first. Um, Walking Dead is a show that is not about a zombie apocalypse, but rather about what happens in micro communities and how micro communities deal with one another and how micro communities often hurt one another. Um, the reason I stopped watching uh, that show was that I believe that the perspective that is guiding that show is that there is no hope, but maybe we need to tell each other there is just so that our micro communities can do some sort of survival mechanism <laughs> for as long as they can. And I don't think that's a problem from a premise of a show, from an exploration of a topic. I don't think that's a problem. What I do think is a problem, though, is that it never got past that. So what do I like about that perspective? What I like about that perspective is you'll hear in a lot of like, whether it's churches or whether it's religious segments or even political segments is like, if only we do the things we'll be good enough and we can survive. Right. If only, and then they're making excuses about like, well, we should do the bad things because at least we'll survive. And you hear this all the time in politics, especially, especially when there's tribalism in politics, because you're thinking like, that side is telling us that this is a giant problem, but we're not going to, we're going to ignore that because it's more important that we win than they win. Right. Um, that's realistic and very true to life. As I just was able to showcase with one example, there's many examples of that. Um, the problem I had was that, and, and by the way, the show also showcases that characters who have hope um, also would do things that other characters found really objectionable. There's a pastor who has a whole barn full of um, zombies that are related to him and in his community. And it's because he's going to try and save them at some point. He thinks that maybe there's some problem with them, right? My point being is, is that there's this hope that people have. And what I was getting kind of, what became old to me was that the show kept reiterating over time that people with hope also die. Very true statement. People with hope also die. You'll find some places that will like indoctrinate you with like people with hope will always make it out. And it's like there is a there's a, there is a component of that that's, that's true. They've done studies around like people who hope they can get out of like a horrific situation. They're in prison or a POW or something. People with hope tend to make it out because they actually think that they can deal with the problems. Whereas people that don't have hope often die because they're like, I can't deal with these problems. And it just leads them into a, a state where they can't overcome the things. So all of that's true in in uh, Walking Dead. I don't have any problems with any of that. But what I got really tired of is that basically what it seemed like to me, and you'll have to tell me if this is true, because I watched about six, seven seasons. The season where Negan showed up is when I when I bailed. Um, what I felt like it was saying was that this is just the way the world is over and over and over and over again without having any other forms of with any other perspectives or any other hope or any other. It was always like we need to have hope, but hope is basically kind of false. And so then therefore, let's just do that every season. And I got tired of that premise being repeated to me over and over and over again. Everything is going well. Oh, no, it's going terrible. Find a new group of people we have to associate with. Everything's going well. Everything's going terrible. Find new people, <laughs> a group of people that we need to associate with. And so for the character deaths that were in those, I thought that the character deaths were actually, from a storytelling perspective, done well from like a surprise standpoint, right? 
the Snoke death we talked about earlier as it pertained to The Last Jedi was done really well because you did not expect that to happen at that time. So this is why it's really interesting. Even though it was really negative for the third film, it was at least um, interesting from watching that film. So as it pertains to character deaths in The Walking Dead, I will. I do have one complaint about them, although I do think that they were handled pretty well a majority of the time. The complaint I have about them is I think that they also became sensational and they became sensationalized. And that's what I also got tired of is that it was almost like the characters were just in their existence and they could die at any time because that's the way the world is. And that is the way the world is to a large extent. But also what it does is it takes away our... It takes away some of our insistence on trying to do good, our insistence on trying to make the world a better place. It becomes a, it becomes a very survivalistic mentality as opposed to a let's thrive instead of just strive to be to stay alive. And I think it used some of that sensationalism to be like, uh, any of these characters can die anytime. And even if they're not doing anything like, so when there was a death, um, when Negan shows up, there was a character death. I won't spoil it. That was like almost completely unnecessary. And it felt to me like it was done just for the sake of like, we're going to F with you <laughs> for lack of a better word. Like we're just going to screw with you. Like this is you, you love this person and they're dead and that's just the way life is deal with it. And show moves on and nothing will ever, nothing will ever come out of this show. That's ever redemptive because redemptive qualities don't exist. Even physical or spiritual redemption does not exist. It is just survival. And it is just, this is all what we are. The world is survival and that's what it is. And I just got tired of seeing that. Is it, is it a bad message? Not necessarily. It's a message that I think some stories should explore because we should deal with that. But then when you start entering um, really emotional character deaths, it started actually removing emotion for me because the, mo the emotion that I started to have was disgust, not love, not sympathy, not empathy, but rather disgust. Disgust for what the storytellers were doing <laughs> um, by manipulating me in that way and being like, well, now death, but death has no meaning. If we're all just animals, which is what this show is kind of saying, if we're all just animals and maybe uh, maybe human beings are actually the worst form of animal because they can't even be anywhere near good to each other. And you should expect death to happen at any time. There's no redemption to it. And it's just horrible. And it is what it is. I just got tired of watching that. And it seemed like it was cheapening to me. And the story wasn't going anywhere. It was just repeating its own tropes over and over and over again. So that's why I stopped watching. And I do believe that some of that, I don't think you want your character. Game of Thrones did something with character deaths that was more interesting to me. It had a very similar philosophy. However, there was this undergirding of thought process around, wow, this Game of Thrones is this ridiculous game to play. And look at all the pain and hurt and problems that this causes in the world. And if we could all stop being so political in the Game of Thrones, and we could all start just loving each other and supporting each other, wouldn't that be a better world? And you see moments of that, and then they'll kill off a character that you really loved there too. But with that, it all it all seemed like it was going somewhere. It seemed like it was going to a place where it was like, and this is another thing about Game of Thrones that I thought was really good until season six, because season six is where the, the show got ahead of the books. 
George R. R. Martin is a pacifist. I believe he's also an atheist. He's at least agnostic, but he's a pacifist. And so part of him writing Game of Thrones was to showcase how ridiculous war is and ridiculous uh, these these um, the Game of Thrones is right. The, the Game of Thrones Game of Thrones series is not suggesting to us that we should play the Game of Thrones. The Game of Thrones is suggesting to us that the Game of Thrones is is it. it causes a lot of problems for us if we play the game of thrones if we put our own ego into the place of saying we should be king it just is devastating and that's obvious in the books and it's obvious in the show through season five and i'll tell you character deaths are the reason it's obvious character deaths are oftentimes categorized as cathartic if you watch in other words the people who are bad get what they deserve and the people who are good get what they deserve. They get to be heroic. They get to have the hero's journey. It's awesome. But the people who are bad, they get killed. And they should be killed because they're doing horrific things. That's usually how a lot of stories in the modern day are told. In fact, I listened to a um, revisionist history podcast about how if you look at Disney stories that have taken, um, that have taken uh, classic um, fairy tales... They oftentimes make it all turn out good in the end. Everything turns out good in the end. But classic fairy tales were like, man, the world's a terrible place and sometimes terrible things happen to you. So it was a very different kind of take that Disney started putting onto its stories. Now, I think both stories are necessary because the hero's journey would suggest to us that we need to, or the adventurer's journey, the monomyth, whatever you, whatever you want to call it. There's a lot of good words for it. That's suggesting to us that we, sh we have a part to play in society and that part matters and that what we do matters. I love that message, but I also love the message that society will never work the way that you want it to. Even though you should strive for it, you need something deeper than society. What does Stranger Things say is actually deeper than society and meaningful? Close friendships, which is what Eddie learns because society doesn't accept Eddie. He learns of the close friendships except Eddie, like Josh uh, Modern Mouse in the chat mentioned earlier. That's a really good message, I think. So, like, not only can you have the adventurer's journey, hero's journey, monomyth journey, but you also have, yeah, but the world is the way it is. So you should strive for better, but also recognize that the world is never going to give you exactly what you want. And even if it does, you'll probably be unsatisfied. So I like all of those things. But in the Game of Thrones, um, what we got were non, not cathartic character deaths. There would be a character and you're like, Character X better kill character Y because character Y has been so atrocious to them. And then character Y would die in like some other horrific way where you're like, oh, that wasn't cathartic at all. That's not how that's not how we wanted the characters to die. Now, why would we say that? Because because if a character is truly horrific monster, we want that character to be vanquished by the hero, by the person who's doing the good things, because it reiterates to us that doing good is good problem with game of thrones was it said doing good is good but also things don't often work out the way that you wish they did but game of thrones so if i was to compare game of thrones and why i liked game of thrones and compared um and compare that to walking dead which i ultimately did not like uh game of thrones had a really interesting premise it added realism into that premise but it was still headed towards an end goal whereas to me walking dead is not headed towards any sort of end goal besides repeating itself over and over and over again. So that's a really interesting question. Um, and I'm glad you asked it, Josh. And that was kind of the 
kind of the the end there. So the last last thing I'm going to talk about really quick, and then I'm going to close it up, is that I really wanted to talk about retcon deaths. And so you'll notice that if you looked at the thumbnail, I had two character deaths on the thumbnail that were actually true deaths, and then I had Hopper's death, which Hopper hasn't died. So uh, I didn't want to have any spoilers for Stranger Things because that's really really recent. Um, but I. Uh, I wanted to throw that out there because at the end of season three, they made it seem like Hopper died. And so I wanted to talk about retcon deaths for a minute because I do think you can do retcon deaths. I'm using quotation marks for anybody watching. I think you can do retcon deaths um, like Infinity War did them where they have an emotional impact to us because we know that the character is living out an experience that's horrific, even though we also probably know that that'll get retconned, right? Like the, the Spidey um, uh, Iron Man death is like really, really tragic. It reminded me a lot of the, um, the Max Lucas interaction actually uh, in Stranger Things. And so that, that I think is um, that I think is something that you can do because there's an emotion that the audience feels at that time. The problem I have with some retcon deaths, and I would throw the Hopper death into this too, and even though I don't have a major problem with it, is that you got your emotional moment, but then you say like, but I still want my character. And that over the course of time will diminish the effect that death has. And the audiences will even go, well, it's not, I mean, they could come back, it's fine. And I think that that is actually a really, really negative thing for a storyteller in the long run it's not a problem in the short term but it's a bigger problem in the long run so and being and having those retcons um can really take away from the stakes because things happening that are bad to characters increase the stakes because if there if there is um if there is a consequence for doing something and doing it wrong if there's a consequence for it that it means that there are stakes. It means that the drama is increased. The conflict is increased. Our uh, our way of behaving as an audience is to be even more anxious and more nervous. But if we know that those stakes don't actually exist, then um, and they can be just retconned. I really enjoyed the end of No Way Home, which does not involve character deaths specifically. It's a way of saying, though, that there are consequences for your actions. And now that you're going to realize those consequences, if there's pain and, and there's discomfort in that. And so I think retcon deaths, unfortunately, take away from the stakes. They take away from the our ability to feel as an audience because we go, oh, well, they'll probably come back again some, some other time. But anyways, I hope that this was an interesting discussion about characters writing and character deaths in stories, especially some of the recent stories that we've seen uh, so if you have any comments, please leave them down below. Send me an email. Um, I'll read the email address in just a minute. If you need a summer audiobook to listen to, it's summer as I'm recording this, I'd love for you to read or listen to Death of a Bounty Hunter. If you're a fan of steampunk fantasy western mashups, we call them weird westerns, then please pick up a copy of our full cast audiobook, Death of a Bounty Hunter. It's about a desperate sheriff who will do anything to save his daughter and a bounty hunter who realizes he can no longer run and the truth, kind of like Eddie. Kind of like Eddie. It's sort of like Red Dead Redemption meets Raiders of the Lost Ark, but with some badass female characters thrown in for some good measure. A link to deathofabodyhunter.com will be in the description. Please support the show by picking up a copy. That is it for today's show. If you have a topic or a question you'd like for me to cover, please leave me a comment or shoot me an email at hi at reclamationsociety.org. That's what Brianna did 
Brianna sent me the email um, to hi at reclamationsociety.org, and I was able to read that at the beginning of this podcast. And it was really a podcast, a show that's based off the fact that Brianna sent me an email. So send me an email, and I'll probably do a show off of that topic as well. I would love to include any of your questions or topic ideas in a future show. New episodes of the Sorgi Show drop every week, both on YouTube and on your preferred podcast provider. I try to release them on Wednesdays, but I record content throughout the week as well. So make sure you're subscribed on YouTube or your preferred podcast provider to get notified of all the latest content. Thanks for watching. Thanks for the active chat with really insightful things to say today. I appreciate all of you. If you'd like for me to cover any specific topic, let me know. Shoot me an email, leave a comment, and I will see you on the next show. Bye.